Right, OK. Uh, well, if there's ever a series of which it can be said it's demonic, this is the one. Um, because uh, we're starting the demonology series tonight. Now, demonology, why have I chosen that word? Demonology is the study of demons, all right? Uh, you know, in the same way that uh, psychology is a study of the mind. Uh, now, obviously, <coughs> because we're Christians, uh, there are loads and loads of demonologies. I mean, occultists have various ones. But our concern is what does the Bible say about demons or evil spirits? And uh, just at the outset, uh, demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits, synonymous terms, all right? So sometimes it will be demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits. I'll use all, the, you know, all those various words. So what does the Bible say about demons or evil spirits or unclean spirits, as they're called? Now, the very first thing that we must say by way of an answer to that question is not very much at all. Now, that's actually tremendously important. Um, if you take the subject of salvation, the Bible says loads. Uh, if you were to say the end times, what does the Bible say about the end times? Loads and loads and loads. Um, if we said, what does the Bible say about how we should live? That is a subject that is ginormous in the Bible. It says loads about that. Uh, or what does the Bible say about Israel? It says loads and loads about Israel. Uh, what does the church say about the church? Loads and loads and loads. But what does the Bible say about demons? Well, very little indeed. And obviously there are many subjects that the Bible doesn't say very much about at all. It tells you enough, but not very much. And what that tells us is that there are lots of things about which we do not need to know very much. And as we're going to see, demons are one of those things. Now, the reason that I start with that, that the Bible doesn't say very much about demons at all, um, is because we've got to approach this subject being very aware that many people who teach about this are saying and teaching many, many things, all right, that cannot in any way be derived or concluded from the Bible. And one of the things we're going to be doing in this series is looking at the current demonology that has won out in spirit-filled Christian circles. And what we're going to see um, is that that has not come just from the Word of God. The demonology around today accepted in most spirit-filled churches has come not just from the Bible, but it's come from a mixture of subjective experience, information that has actually been got from what demons themselves say when they're being cast out and sheer speculation all right and then what happens is that those speculations and the things that demons have said have been read back into the bible so that today you've got a, a massive mixture in demonology of bits that have come from the Bible, so the Bible is in the equation, so we've got the Bible plus what demons say, you know, when they're being cast out, uh, plus subjective experience, people drawing conclusions from their own experience of demons, uh, and the most wild-out speculation that you can possibly imagine, and that is one of the things that we're going to see. Uh, so what we've got to do in this series is we're going to go through the Bible and we're going to see what we can conclude about demons from the Bible alone. 
And that is absolutely vital. It's the Bible alone. And everything else we're going to strip away and throw out. Okay, now that really is the nature of this series. Now, let me say here that there are two tapes already existing in the tape catalogue, without which this series won't be complete. But there are certain areas that I've covered on them that I'm not going to do again, all right? It's the Spiritual Universe series. It's just two little tapes. Uh, one is called The Sons of God, and the second one is called Satan, A Biography, all right? Now, it's important to hear those tapes. Uh, it would be silly for me to incorporate everything on those tapes into this series, because they're on the tapes. But I do want to emphasise uh, that there are going to be certain things that are dealt with there that I'm not going to be dealing with here. But you'll need those tapes to complete the overall picture. Okay. Uh, right, so let's start with the first question. I mean, when you're starting a series about demons, where do you start? Well, let's start here. What are demons? I mean, basic stuff, foundational. Although, as you're going to see, the answer to that question is not actually, sadly, as obvious as it should be. Uh, what are demons? Right, now, we're going to be all over the place tonight in the Bible. Now, if you can't keep up, stop, you know, just, li I will read out all the verses. If you can't keep up, just listen, <laughs> all right, and then get the tape, okay. Now, first of all, Job, go to the book of Job and various passages that we're just going to string together and uh, you'll see how they come together and help answer this question, what are demons? First of all, Job 38. Now these are some uh, rhetorical questions that the Lord is putting to Job. And uh, Job 38, verse 4 to 7, <coughs> we have this. Where were you, this is the Lord speaking to Job, who was getting a little bit big for his boots at this point. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Law's being a bit sarky here. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So what God is saying, look, Joe, where were you when I created the universe, uh, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, there you have the fact that in the Old Testament, morning stars and sons of God are a term for the angels, all right? So the sons of God and the morning stars are the angels. Now, also, if you just go back into Job chapter 1, and we can see clearly they're angels because obviously there weren't any people around when the universe was created. Uh, Job chapter 1 and verse 6. We have, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Whence have you come? Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So what we've got here is that Satan presents himself to the Lord in heaven. We know it's in heaven because it's not on earth. The Lord says, Where have you come from, Satan? Oh, I've come from the earth. And here we again, you've got the sons of God presenting themselves before the Lord, the angels. And uh, if you go down into, into chapter 2 as well in verse 1, you'll find the same thing, that that thing happens again a little while later. Okay. Now then, let's go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. 
Revelation chapter 12. And you've got one of the visions that John has here uh, about what's going on in the Great Tribulation. And uh, you've got this um, you know, thing where he sees uh, this, this dragon who is Satan. And uh, it says in verse 4, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. All right, now go down into verse 9. And the great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. All right? Now, this is how we can find out, isn't it? His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Idiom there for having authority over. Satan has authority over a third of the angels, i.e. a third of the angels rebelled with him, okay? Now go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 and verse 31. And this is just the, um, sorry, Matthew 25, verse 41. Now, this is the tail end of a parable. It's not the parable we're interested in. It's just this bit. Then he will say to those who are at his left hand, this is about unbelievers who die without the Lord in the final judgment, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And incidentally, it's, you know, there, the lake of fire, or Gehenna, was created not for human beings, it was created for Satan and his angels, okay. Now then, let's go to Genesis chapter six. I will pull all this together. Genesis chapter six. <coughs> A little bit about Noah. <coughs> There are going to be lots and lots of verses throughout this series where it's not the main content or the whole context of the verse we're interested in, it's just the information about evil spirits, etc., etc. Genesis 6, and first of all, verse 1. When men became, began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair and they took to wife such of them as they chose. Now go down into verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Now, here we have the incident, all right, when Satan gets up to his old genetic engineering, all right, and uh, some of the angels, obviously the demonic angels, all right, actually take on a body that can mate with human beings. The idea being to kind of get a new breed that is not human. And of course, if Satan had been able to do that, Messiah was, you know, going to be a human being. So if there were no human beings left on the earth, no Messiah. And this was Satan's first attempt to muck up the genealogical line of the Messiah. No people, Messiah can't come because there won't be any human beings to be born to. So here we have angels becoming physical in such a way that they actually mate with human women, all right? And the result of that was these offspring, the Nephilim as they were called, the giants, all right? Now then, go over to 2 Peter. <coughs> 2 Peter.
and chapter two. And verse four. Now here we have Peter talking about what happened to those angels that did that. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, and if your Bible has got hell or Hades there, it's the wrong word, it should be Tartarus, and committed them to pits of never gloom to be kept until the judgment if he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, blah, blah, blah. Now there you have the reference to the fact of God not sparing these angels who sinned, all right, in the days of Noah. Now lastly, Jude. Jude is just before Revelation. Jude and verse 6. <coughs> and the angels that did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, and the word their dwelling in the Greek is the word for tent, which was used for a body, your natural body, but left their proper natural body, have been kept by him in eternal chains in the nether gloom until the judgment of the great day. All right. Now, with all those verses, all right, the reason that I've read them out is to establish one thing and one thing only. The fact that demons or evil spirits or unclean spirits are angels. That's simply the point I want to make. The evil spirits, demons, unclean spirits, they are the third of the angelic host, the one-third of the angels, who rebelled with Satan, who is also an angel. All right. So a demon equals an evil spirit equals an unclean spirit equals an angel, a baddie angel, as opposed to a goody angel. Now, I would say simple, isn't it? that that is pretty obvious, all right. However, we can see that simple, but today there are various other teachings going around about demons and angels, etc., etc. And one of the things that is taught today, uh, and it's taught by the most influential <coughs> proponents of demonology in the Christian church, in a couple of studies time, we'll be looking at what the current teaching is. They teach that demons are not fallen angels. They have this teaching that the fallen angels are the principalities and powers. Now, we'll be doing a separate study on what that means. But that the evil spirits that get inside people that need casting out, they are not angels. They are something else. Now, there are two things that have been put forward for what they might be. The first one I'll dispense with very, very quickly. Some teach it's the offspring of the uh, sort of people in the time of Noah when the angels had sex with human beings. We discount that immediately because the Bible tells us that the offspring of that was the giants. All right. But some teach that these evil spirits are the spirits of that odd creation that happened then. I mean, daft. The main teaching that normally wins out, though, is quite simply this that evil spirits are actually the spirits of a pre-Adamite creation on earth that went wrong and that God had to destroy. Now that is one of the main teachings that you get today, all right? So what they've got is they say that demons or evil spirits are quite separate from fallen angels.
fallen angels as principalities and powers are working in the world, but evil spirits, as in the ones that need casting out if they get inside people, all right, they are the spirits of a pre-Adamite creation that went wrong and which God had to destroy, all right? So fallen angels we do spiritual warfare against, but these things that we cast out of people are the spirits of a, a human creation prior to Adam that was destroyed, all right? Now, what I will say to you is here is speculation at its most rampant. Now, the reason that that belief has come up, okay, is simply because a couple of hundred years ago, uh, a very, very uh, influential theory came about on the Christian scene that a lot of Bible scholars swallowed, and it was this. It's called the gap theory. Now, the reason that evil spirits cannot be the spirits of a pre-Adamite creation that went wrong is quite simply this. The Bible says that God created the entire universe in six days. There is no time for pre-Adamite creation. By the time Adam came on the scene, the universe was only six days old. Is he? But the gap theory, which says this, in Genesis 1, you've got a gap between verses 1 and 2 of millions and millions of years. And what they teach is that in... Uh, actually, turn to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. <coughs> Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then they say there's a gap of millions of years. The earth was without form and void. And what they teach is that there's a gap between verses 1 and 2 of millions of years. Now, in that millions of years, God's creation went hopelessly wrong. And, and God had to destroy it. And that he recreated it out of that chaos. All right? Now, that's the teaching of the gap theory. Very interesting that the gap theory emerged fairly soon after the church started to lose the argument against Darwin. The gap theory emerged amongst Christians because they were getting frightened by evolution. And they thought, right, what we've got to do is we've got to have sufficient time. They thought that Darwin had proven that the Earth was, you know, millions of years old, which he hadn't at all. But the Christians got frightened and they said, right, the gap theory, that would allow that God did it through evolution. Can you see? So that's why the gap theory came in. So if you've got a gap of millions of years between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, then, can you see, you've got room to speculate of a pre-Adamite existence which went wrong and the demons or evil spirits today are the spirits of that creation kind of fighting back and trying to demonise people, all right? So then, this speculation about demons being the spirits of a pre-Adamite existence can be dealt with by one particular thing. How old is the earth? How long did it take God to create the universe? If it takes six days, if it took six days, as Genesis 1 and 2, I believe, clearly says, all right, then the gap theory and all this rubbish about evil spirits being a pre-Adamite existence are out the window. There's no time for pre-Adamite existence if when Adam came on the scene, the universe was only six days old. So the point is, the question, can it be demonstrated beyond all doubt from the Bible that the universe was created in six days? Now, I would maintain that Genesis 1 and 2, if you read that, it's obvious. 
But a lot of Christians, they say, well, no, actually, we don't think it is obvious. They say it's open-ended. I don't agree with them. But let's just say for one moment that Genesis 1 and 2, that you can't be certain whether it's a literal six days or six periods of time, okay? Is there somewhere else in the Bible that clears that up once and for all? Go to Exodus chapter 20. If Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are not sufficient on their own to establish how old the universe was when Adam was created, this verse, I think, will. Now, remember, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 were written by Moses, Moses having been given the information by God. In this passage, we have a conversation between God and Moses, the same two people. So, Exodus 20, verse 8, the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. Go down into verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now here God is speaking to Moses, and he says we're going to have a Sabbath law, and the seventh day is holy. And so I'll tell you why. Because I created the earth in six days. The universe in six days. Therefore, six days your work and rest on the seventh, just like I did. Now, can you see that verse clears up once and for all any suggestion that Genesis 1 and 2 are ambiguous in whether the earth was created in six literal days? This is not ambiguous in any way at all. I think Genesis 1 and 2 makes it absolutely clear. There's no ambiguity there. But if people want to argue that, this is the verse they've got to go to, where the days of Genesis 1 and 2 are here clearly shown to be literal 24-hour days. Because God says, I created the universe in six days, so you work for six days. And on the seventh, you rest. Okay. So, therefore, can evil spirits or demons be the offspring, number one, the offspring, of uh, the fallen angels having sex in the times of Noah? Answer, no, the Bible's quite clear. The offspring of that were the giants, and they're all gone. Number two, can evil spirits be the spirits of a pre-Adamite creation that went wrong? Answer, no. Adam was created when the universe was only six days old. So therefore, there is no time for a pre-Adamite creation. So what I want to show you is this. That idea that evil spirits are a pre-Adamite creation, a human one that went wrong, that is dangerous speculation, and it only comes about because of the failure to take the Bible literally and at face value. That theory only came about because of a prior theory, the gap theory, and that came about because the Christian church was getting a bit defensive about evolution and thought we've got to suddenly fit millions of years into creation so that we can say that, oh yeah, evolution happened, but it was God doing it. You see? So the point is, there is an example of speculation. Speculation which goes way beyond anything that can be deduced from the Bible. And speculation that actually complicates it. The biblical answer to what are demons is perfectly straightforward. They're fallen angels. And the speculation simply complicates the picture. 
by answering irrelevant questions that were only raised in the first place because Christians left a literal interpretation of the Bible. Okay. So, therefore, what have we established so far? We've established that demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits, are fallen angels, all right? A third of the angelic creation fell. A third of them became what we now know to be demons. And some of them are currently imprisoned in Tartarus, all right? But the rest are all over the place, as we will see in the rest of the series. Now, let's go into the Hebrew and Greek so we can understand more of what we're dealing with here, all right? I mean, spirits, demons, blah, blah, blah. Let's go into the original languages. First of all, the Old Testament, the Hebrew, all right? Now, the um, spirit demon, what are the Hebrew words? The Hebrew word for ruach, well, there are two of them. Sorry, the Hebrew word for spirit, two of them. The first one is ruach, and it means wind or breath, all right? So it can mean three things. It can mean a spirit, as in an a personality in the sense of a spirit, an angel, all right? Or it can mean wind, as in where the wind blows, or it can be breath, all right? The second word for spirit is neshormo, all right? And this is also used for spirits in the Bible, but not very often, and it comes from the verb norshom, which means to blow away or destroy. And that was why it was linked to spirits, all right? You know, their destructive power. Um, so that word means breath, inspiration, or spirit as well. But in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, when you get the word spirit, nine times out of ten, in fact, 90 times out of 100, which is exactly the same, isn't it? Uh, it's ruach, <laughs> 99 times out of 100, rather. It's ruach and not neshormot, all right? So that's, that's the Hebrew word for spirit. Now, the Hebrew word for demon, because you get the word demon in the Old Testament Hebrew as well, is sawweer. Now, that means shaggy or a he-goat. It's the word for a goat, because a goat is shaggy. Um, now, the noun for a goat, shaggy, came from the verb sorva, which means to shiver, and it means fear. And uh, in the ancient world, goats were always tied in with things demonic and satanic and the objects of fear, all right? Now, the second word in the Hebrew for demon is sheed, all right? S-H-E-D, sheed. And that's from the, the verb shud, which means to devastate. So you can see there that in the Hebrew tongue, spirits were associated with destruction and fear, etc., etc. Now, the third word we need to know in the Hebrew that crops up in the Old Testament is a funny little word, ov. It's spelled O-B-E when you transliterate it into English, uh, but it's pronounced ov. Now, in a lot of Bibles, particularly the King James, this gets translated familiar spirit, all right? Which is not a very good translate, uh, translation of it, and I'll, I'll try and explain. This word ov was used of especially spirits which, manifest them, which manifested themselves during seances pretending to be spirits of the dead, i.e. coming through a medium. Now, the word means quite a few things, and I'll list them for you. It means a mumbler or a ventriloquist. The idea being that when the spirit came through the medium, the spirit would speak, but the voice wasn't normal. I mean, sometimes even the medium's lips wouldn't move, hence ventriloquist, all right? And mumbler, all right, in fact, literally to prattle, 
means that the spirit yakking on and on and on, all right? And it was specifically used of the manifestation of a spirit during a necromancy session, i.e. when you were in contact, supposedly, with the spirit of a dead person. Now, the reason, uh, well, due to the fact that the King James Version translates this word familiar spirit, and I'll tell you in a minute why it does that, okay, has led to the belief of familiar spirits being a particular kind of spirit. Now, one of the things that we're going to be dealing with throughout this course is this whole thing about demons of this, that, and the other, all right? Are there demons of this, that, and the other? Now here, people say, well, look, there are familiar spirits. Now, the thing to understand is that the word familiar comes from the word family. Because obviously you know your own family best. That's where the word familiar comes from. It comes from family. And this Hebrew word, ov, is very, very close to the Hebrew word for father. And literally means to prattle a father's name. Now, when you put that together, what you've got is this. It's not a familiar spirit. The idea is family spirit. And it's the fact that if, if, if a family lost a father, all right, you go along and you have a seance. The spirit comes through pretending to be your dad and kind of like prattles away trying to demonstrate that it's um, your dad, when in fact it's not. So this word of, when you get familiar spirit in the King James Version, and maybe some of the modern translations, the RSV dropped that translation because they realised that it was a wrong one. But it's simply a reference to a spirit aping someone who is dead. And because it was normally families trying to get in touch with the father, and because the father was like number one in the family, that's why the word of was used of that particular spirit. So it's not actually a familiar spirit. There's no such thing as a familiar spirit as opposed to a different type of spirit. It's simply that the word came from the word for father. And also with kind of like mixed in with it, the word for mumbling and prattling and ventriloquism as well. Because there were times when the medium's lips wouldn't move, but nevertheless the words were coming out, okay. So that's the Hebrew, spirit and demon, all right. Let's move on now to the Greek, the New Testament. <coughs> now in the New Testament, the Greek words for spirit, all right, there are two, two Greek words for spirit. The first is phantasma. And that's the word we get phantasm from. Uh, and it's from the, the, the verb phaino, which means to appear. And obviously, because a phantasm is an appearance, isn't it? Uh, and it means a spectre or a ghost. <coughs> I.e., in the classic meaning of the word ghost, the spirit of a dead person wandering around in, in spectral form. Like, you know, the, the house is haunted by Auntie Frieda or something like that, by the ghost of Auntie Frieda. Now, <coughs> in the New Testament, that word is only used twice. Once in Matthew and once in Mark, both times by Jesus. And each time, do you remember there was an occasion, and obviously you get it reported once in Matthew and once in Mark, when the disciples thought that Jesus was a ghost. And Jesus uses the word specifically to deny that he was a ghost. Because, of course, he wasn't. So we can dispense with phantasma. The only time the word that means ghost appears in the New Testament was Jesus saying, I'm not one, all right? So we can chuck that away. There are, of course, no ghosts. It's given for a man to die once and then comes judgment. When someone dies, it's up or down, simple as that. You know, there's no putting in an appearance later on, okay? 
Now, the second word in the Greek for spirit, which is the one that is used 9,999 times out of every 10,000, all right, <laughs> is pneuma, pneuma. And it's from the verb pneuo, which means to breathe. It's the word we get pneumatic drill from, because a pneumatic drill is worked by air. And it means, again, wind, breath or spirit. And it is simply the direct Greek equivalent to ruach in the Hebrew. Wind, breath or spirit. So fundamentally, in the Bible, whether it's the Hebrew or the Greek, usually the word for spirit simply means either wind, breath or spirit. Now, the Greek word for demon is daemon, which gives a whole new meaning to the name of the bloke in the omen, doesn't it? Damien. It means daemon. Sorry, the Greek word is daemon. Now, daemon signified amongst the ancient Greeks. And remember that because the early church were in a Greek-speaking world, the Greek language derived from what the Greeks meant from it, obviously. Now, amongst the pagan Greeks, a daemon signified an inferior deity. Now, originally, whether good or bad, because the Greeks believed in loads and loads and loads of gods, you know, there, there were different ranks of god. Some were good, some were bad. Now, whether it was referring to a good mini-god or a bad mini-god, because that's what it boils down to, isn't it? I mean, polytheism is lots of mini-gods all put together to try and make up a big one, isn't it, really? Uh, a mini-god, a pagan god, whether good or bad, was called a daemon, all right? But in the New Testament, in the New Testament, and this was the same in Jewish thought and, and early church thought as well, that word always denotes an evil spirit. So the word demon, daemon, in the New Testament, that word was used specifically for demons, evil spirits, blah, blah, blah. And the word demon comes from daemon. That's why an evil spirit or an unclean spirit equals a demon. The church hijacked that Greek word specifically to refer to evil spirits. And this, this noun, daemon, now that there's, it's thought to come from the Greek root da, da, which means to distribute or more likely to know a knowing one, all right. But nevertheless, the word daemon refers to a demon. Now, what I want to do now is to go through the New Testament. And I want to show you the various ways in which the Bible uses this Greek word pneuma or spirit. Remember one of the things we've got to address is are there spirits of this, spirits of that, blah blah blah. So what I want to do, we're going to go through the New Testament and see the various ways that the Bible uses this word spirit, pneuma. First of all, John 3. In fact, don't bother even to turn to it, all right? When, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about being born again, Jesus said, the wind blows where it wills, all right? So there you have a use of the word, that's, that's John 3, 8, the use of the word pneuma referring to the wind, just as in where the wind blows, as it were. Go to 2 Thessalonians, and we'll see where this Greek word pneuma is used specifically meaning breath, I when you breathe out your breath, all right? 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 8. And this is talking about when Jesus will destroy the Antichrist. And then the Lordless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth. Now there you have the word pneuma, spirit, used 
for breath. Literally, the breath of your mouth. Go to Act 17. We'll see another one. Act 17. Verse 25. Act 17, verse 25. <coughs> now, this is Paul preaching to the Greeks. He says, Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. So there you have the word pneuma, spirit, used of literally the breath. Now then, the third use, be going to Hebrews chapter 12, is the, is the Bible uses the word spirit or pneuma for a disembodied human being. Remembering that one day, whether you're saved or not, when you die, you lose your body. And until you get a resurrection body, you're in an interim stage. Now, the Bible tells us that, that in, during that interim stage, we are spirits. Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> we'll read verse 1 first. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Now, what is this great cloud of witnesses we're surrounded by? Go down into verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The cloud of witnesses we're surrounded by, in that sense, are everyone who's died having believed on the Lord. Because until they get their glorified body, they're spirits, is it? When you die, you will temporarily become a spirit because you won't have a body. That will make sense in a few minutes. Now then, a fourth use of this word spirit in the Bible is simply for your purpose or intention or your aim. All right? Go to 2 Corinthians. <coughs> 2 Corinthians. Because what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that it's far too simplistic to think that every time the Bible uses the word spirit, it's referring either to God or, or demons. This is the point. The word spirit is used of a lot of things. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18. <coughs> and Paul says this, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Now, what Paul is saying, look, we're being accused of having wrong motives. But he said, look, clearly Titus didn't have any wrong motives. His intentions to you were good. And he said, am I not of the same spirit? So there, Paul uses the word spirit simply for his intentions, his aims. I'm only trying to do you good. There's no wrong motives in what I'm trying to do. Go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, and a verse we saw when we were doing the Philippians series. Philippians chapter 1 and uh, verse 27. <coughs> he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's saying, I hope your intentions are all the same. He's using the word spirit simply for intention, purpose, or aim, a human aim. Uh, go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Verse 
Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22. He says, Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful love, uh, lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new nature. He's talking about the intention. It's not that the human mind has got a spirit. He's, he's just using it for your, your mental intention, what, it, what your purpose is, okay? Now then, fifthly, the word spirit in the New Testament is used as an equivalent of the personal pronoun. Go to 1 Corinthians 16 and you'll see what I mean by this. The personal pro pronoun is I. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18. He's talking about some people who cheered him up, and he says in verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. He's saying they refreshed me. Is he? It's not that, I mean, how do you refresh someone's spirit, for heaven's sake? You know, give it a glass of holy water or something. I mean, it's ridiculous, <laughs> isn't it? Is he? They refreshed me. All right. Go to 2 Timothy 4. This one will keep becoming clearer. So we go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, <coughs> verse 22. He says, the Lord be with your spirit. Well, what does that mean? The Lord be with you. I mean, it's not, you know, I pray the Lord will be with your spirit and with your body and with your soul, you know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, this, this dividing us all up into bits is is not quite as biblical as some people think. It's just the Lord be with your spirit, the Lord be with you. It's one of the Greek uses of the word pneuma. Uh, and go to 1 John. This is a verse we'll be back to in later studies, um, but if it's ever baffled you, uh, I'll give you at least a quick clue to it now. And the writer says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they have God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. So then, you've got to test the spirits. What does that mean? I mean, if someone's got a spirit in them, do you have to say, excuse me, spirit, do you believe that Jesus has come in the flesh? How do you test, if someone's got a spirit in them, I mean, by definition, it's an evil spirit, isn't it? Obviously. So here, what is it talking about? Well, the clue is, for false prophets have gone out. Here, John is using the word spirits, referring to people. They're people, you test people. And of course, the early church, they didn't have the Bible. That was still being written, all right? And there were loads of false prophets. And mainly, what they were going out saying is that Jesus didn't really become human. That was the main heresy that came from the Greek thinkers. Jesus only looked human. Because remember, the Greeks believed that matter was evil. So they went around saying, no, Jesus, he only looked physical. He didn't really come in the flesh. It was a big deception. It was a bit of a con. All right. So therefore, if, if a wandering preacher passed through your church, you thought, hey, yeah, this guy, he seems to know what he's doing. All right. You tested him. Do you believe Jesus came in the flesh? And if they said no, you knew that they were one of those false prophets. So here, the word spirit is used of a personal pro you know, pronoun. Test the spirits. Test the people. One of the usages of the word spirit in the Bible. Now then, sixthly, the word spirit in the New Testament is used for character moral qualities and activities. Go to Romans 8. When we actually finish going through this list, it will become absolutely abundantly clear. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. 
Now, this is what Paul says. <clears throat> For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. Now then, you know, I mean, lots of people say, oh, here we are, look, a spirit of slavery. Here it is, look, in the Bible, a spirit of slavery. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, look, the fact that now you're sons of God, he says, when we cry out a father, he says, now we're sons of God. And he's saying, what, what therefore does that mean? What have we received? What is the quality of life we've now got? Are we to be frightened of God? Are we in some kind of bondage to him so that as soon as we step out of line, he crushes us? He says, no, we haven't got the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship. He's saying that is our outlook. That's what it's all about. He's not talking about, you know, that sort of like, we haven't got an evil spirit of slavery, but instead we've got the Holy Spirit of sonship. He's talking about our life now is all about the fact that we're sons. And if we're sons, then we're not in slavery, because you're in slavery to a slave master. We are the sons of our Father in heaven. So that's what Paul is using the word spirit there, talking about, you know, this is the push behind our lives now. Don't be frightened of God. We're not slaves. We are sons. And in the ancient world, they knew all about the fear that slaves lived in. Uh, go to uh, 1 Corinthians 4.21. Right, and in 1 Corinthians 4.21, he's saying to them, look, you know, get your act together, because when I come to visit you, I want it to be a pleasant experience. I don't want to have to come and, you know, do the look, I'm in authority, I, I want it to be sweet. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Well, he's not talking about a spirit of gentleness, in that sense, he's not talking about angels or demons or anything like that. He's simply saying, when I come, what is my attitude going to have to be? What is my moral stance going to have to be with you? Are we just going to, you know, be friends and everything cool, or am I going to have to sort you all out? So can you see here the word spirit, like in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it's being used of an outlook, all right. Uh, go to um, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. 2 Corinthians 4. <coughs> verse 13. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith as he who wrote, I believed, and so I speak. Now, what does he mean there by the spirit of faith? It's not a kind of a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of faith. Nowhere in the Bible is the Holy Spirit called the spirit of faith. He's talking about our outlook. He's he. He says, look, are we going to move in faith or not? Are we going to have a spirit of faith? Is he? Not referring to spirit beings in any way at all, talking about human outlook and attitude. Uh, just do Luke, Luke 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 55. This will, I think, make it very clear. <coughs> now, this is uh, when um, Jesus took James and John and they went along to this Samaritan village and the Samaritan village didn't want to know and they were really, you know, they didn't receive Jesus at all. And... Uh, and hear what they said in verse 34, uh, 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them? They wanted to do an Elijah. How, how dare they not accept you, Jesus? Well, we'll sort them out, all right? Now, remember Jesus, who came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Verse 54, it says, and he said, I, Jesus, responds to them, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. 
For the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Can you see, Jesus said, my goodness, what an attitude. I wish you too would sort your attitude out. Spirit there is talking about attitude. Can you see character and moral qualities? Okay. Now then, seventh, the word spirit in the New Testament is used quite simply for the spirit of man. All right? Uh, go to, you're in Luke 9, go to Luke 8, verse 55. <coughs> Luke 8, verse 55. And this was the little girl who had died. And Jesus says she's going to be all right. Uh, verse 53, and they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise, and her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And we, we do have a spirit. We do have a spirit. It's through our spirit that we can have fellowship with God. Uh, go to Acts 7. Acts 7, verse 59. There is our human spirit. Acts 7, verse 59. And this is when Stephen gets stoned to death. Or is it rocked to sleep? And they were stoning Stephen and he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. See, his human spirit. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Talking about the human spirit. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 11. Paul says, for what person knows a man's thoughts except the spirit of the man which is in him? So you're talking about just the human spirit. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And there he's talking about the human spirit. So, there's seven different ways so far that the Bible uses this word spirit. Eight. Number eight, it uses the word spirit when it talks about the Holy Spirit. No need to go into that, that's obvious, all right. Loads of references when the word spirit is used of the Holy Spirit. Uh, number nine, uh, the New Testament uses the word spirit in relation to demons, all right. Now, we'll see plenty of that, so we're not going to uh, sort of go through verses there. And then lastly, number ten, the word spirit in the Bible, in the New Testament, is used for angels. Go to Hebrews. And chapter 1. Hebrews and chapter 1. <coughs> now then, we'll just, just see verse 5 to get the context. For what, for to what angel did God ever say? Now it just shows us verse 5, the context, he's talking about angels. So therefore, verse 14 is talking about angels. Now these are the goody angels, all right? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who are to obtain salvation? So there we have, tenthly, that the word spirit is used in the Bible of angels. Now, what we want out of that list is basically this. It shows us that when you get the word spirit in the Bible, it can be one of different things. And all those categories boil down fundamentally to three different things. The word spirit, when used in the Bible, can be referring either to God and his angels or to <coughs> demons, evil spirits, or it can be referring to things human. Now, that's the really important thing to get hold of. 
The word spirit is very often in the Bible simply used of things which pertain to humanness. So what I want to draw you away from is any idea that biblically the word spirit is either God and his angels or Satan and demons. Very frequently the word spirit is used in, in regards to human beings, not God and angels or Satan and demons at all. Now bear that thought in mind. It's time now to define a spirit, all right? What is a spirit, as in angels, demons, etc., etc., or indeed even human beings when they die and haven't got a body? And it's simply this. The Bible defines, not explicitly, but this is the definition that you can take out of everything that the Bible says about a spirit. A spirit is a being without a material body. Now by material body I mean a body made up of the matter of which this universe is made up of. Remember the angels existed before the universe of matter was created. Now the Bible teaches that as human beings we are souls because we're, we're physical. You get teaching going round amongst the charismatics that they say that we are spirits in a body and therefore we must live in the spirit dimension. That is absolute rubbish. We are not spirits. We are souls precisely because we're physical. When God created the body, Adam, he breathed his spirit into the body, and when the spirit went into the body, Adam became a living soul. God didn't breathe a soul into him, and therefore he became a living spirit. God breathed the spirit into his body and therefore Adam became a living soul. We are souls because we have a physical body made up of the matter of which the universe is made up of. We are corporeal in that sense. And that is why when we die we are temporarily spirits because until you get your resurrection body, which is a physical body, we're spirits. We are without a resurrection body and without a normal human physical body. So we are souls because we're physical. We're only spirits during that interim period of after death and before we get um, our resurrection body. <coughs> However, from the story of the rich man and the beggar, do you remember the rich man went down into Hades? He went the wrong way, didn't he? Now we know that even though at that point he became a spirit because he lost his physical body that was lying in the grave and he doesn't get his resurrection body and thrown into Lake of Fire until the end of time, okay? So at the moment he, that rich man down there at this moment, he is a spirit. However, we know that his tongue burned and that there was fire down there. Now what this tells us is that when we die be it when you go up or down, we, we still have a body which is neither physical nor a resurrection body. It's not physical like this body, and it's not a resurrection body, but it's still something because the Bible tells us that he had a tongue. And after all, when we do die, we're going to see the Lord. You can't see the Lord without a body of some type. Okay. <coughs> but basically, what we've got is that the Bible tells us that a spirit is a being without a physical body, such as we have now, or a resurrection body, such as we'll have in the future. Therefore, God the Father of the Trinity, he is spirit. The Bible says that, God is spirit. The Father does not have a physical body. 
be of uh, the resurrection heavenly, heavenly stuff or physically. The Holy Spirit is a spirit by definition. Jesus isn't, never was. See, Jesus always had a body. Now he's got a human glorified body. But the Father is a spirit and the Holy Spirit is a spirit. Now then, what we do know, however, is that spirits can take on physical appearance, but it is not their natural state. Now we know that through two things. Firstly, the Holy Spirit appeared as a dove, didn't he? And then again as tongues of fire. That was material. Uh, the angels found a way to get bodies so that they could mate. Okay, so we know that spirits can take on physical appearance, but it is not their natural state when they do so. All right. Also, when we're talking of angels and demons, <coughs> we know that angels, spirits, do, however, have a body. But it is not one that we can see or even conceive. For instance, the cherubim, who are angels, they have wings. And clearly, angels do have bodies of some type. Therefore, demons do. But here's the point. It is a totally different thing from anything we can conceive or experience. Here's the point. So spirits are sentient beings without bodies in the way that we conceive bodies. Although they do have a body, because some angels, there's no you know, no reason to conclude from the Bible that all angels, but some angels at least have wings. The Holy Spirit um, could appear as a dove, you see. But angels do have a body of some type, but they're a different order of existence. And beyond that, you can't go, you can't begin to conceive it. But basically, what we need to define is this. A spirit, as in demons, angels, blah, 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 a spirit is a sentient being that does not have a material body as we in the space-time universe conceive a material body, all right? So that's the definition of spirit, a sentient being without a material body. So what we've seen so far is that when you get the word spirit in the Bible, it can be referring to God and the angels, uh, it can be referring to Satan and the evil spirits, as in demons, or it can refer simply to humanness, all right? Now, what we're going to do now is go through another list, Old Testament and New Testament, so you can really get the idea. Now, the reason we're doing this at this point is because in uh, two studies' time, in number three, we're going to be asking the question, do demons have names? And this list that we're going to go through now is pertinent to that that we'll be doing in a couple of, um, of studies' time. But I repeat, the thing that is important to understand here is that the word spirit in the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, can be referring simply to humanness. Now then, first of all, let's, uh, let's go to our numbers. Numbers number five. <coughs> and I'm going to show you various uses of the word spirit and we'll see, we'll work out to what it's actually referring. So, first of all, numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Leviticus numbers, numbers 5, verse 11. <coughs> and the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, if any man's wife goes astray and acts unfaithfully against him, 
if a man lies with her carnally and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act and if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him now that's all all i want and if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him this is saying what does the bloke do if he finds out his wife's been having an affair and obviously he's going to be jealous and quite right too and here it says if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him now then let me ask you are we talking here that he, here's a bloke who's found out his wife is having an affair and he's jealous the spirit of jealousy comes upon him is the bible here saying that an evil spirit of jealousy descends on him and that's why he's jealous no of course not by the spirit of jealousy it's just it's human can you it's a usage of the word if that becomes his emotions and outlook so here spirit of jealousy is purely talking humanness nothing to do with evil spirits here at all all right let's go to judges chapter 9 <coughs> Judges chapter 9, verse 23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Well, that's easy. There, that's an evil spirit. That is a demon. So we've got one that was just talking about humanness. Now we've got a demon. Uh, let's go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Chapter 1. Now, this is Hannah, who was barren and longed for a child, and eventually she had Samuel, who was the prophet. 1 Samuel 1, verse 15. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman... Now then, if you've got the King James Version, it will say, I am the woman of a sorrowful spirit. In my translation, because I understood a bit better, they've put, I am a woman sorely troubled. But in the Hebrew, it's, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit because I haven't got any children. Now, that's not talking about a demon of sorrow. This woman did not have a demon of sorrow. She was upset because she was barren. She longed for children, she didn't have any. So there, we got the word spirit, Samuel's mum, but it's her, she was sorrowful, she was upset. Purely human, no reference there to a demon of sorrow. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. One Samuel chapter sixteen <coughs> and verse fourteen. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Oh, just note, this is the second time we've seen an evil spirit here, isn't it? Both times sent from the Lord. Still an evil spirit. God uses Satan to do his work, and God uses demons to do his work as well, all right? It's interesting, God sent an evil spirit. Saul was a believer as well. Fascinating stuff. Not very charismatic, I'm afraid. But here we have God sending, dispatching demons out to people to do a work in them, all right? They were out of fellowship, and God letting uh, demons do a work in them. Okay, so here we've definitely got an evil spirit. Saul, who is a believer, ends up here demonized, okay? Uh, go to 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22 and verse 21. 1 Kings 22 and verse 21. 
then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I, the spirit, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Now here we've got, you know, God wanted to sort someone out, all right? Here, a demon offers his services. Well, the reason, I mean, demons just like doing anything that people don't like because they don't like people. But God actually gives this demon, because what this demon wanted to do suited God down the ground. He said, right, okay. Uh, lying spirit? Well, the spirit was going to go and, you know, and, and tell lies and deceive them. Uh, you know, we'll see that there aren't, you know, there's no such thing as a lying spirit as opposed to a lustful spirit. It's just that here the demon is going to go and tell lies. It's as simple as that. So he says, I'll go as a lying spirit. So there we have another demon. Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, <coughs> verse 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now then, what are we dealing with here? Demons? No, we're not. We're talking about humanness again. You know, I, I mean, you know, pride, uh, a haughty spirit. Well, we know what it means if someone's got a haughty spirit. What about a demon? I mean, for heaven's sake, is there a lowly spirit? Is there a demon of lowliness? I mean, it's crazy. It's simply God saying, look, if your attitude is proud, you'll fall. God, you know, he humbles the proud. But if you're of a lowly spirit, you'll be raised up. See? It's all about human attitude again. So that one, the word spirit, spirit of, but it's talking about humanness. Go to Isaiah. Isaiah 61. And verse 3. And this is the prophecy, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, to blah, 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 blah. Now then, verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Zion and give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. Now, again, what's it talking about? It's just talking about the condition they're in as human beings. We all know what it's like to be heavy, don't we? Well, Jesus has come so that instead of being heavy, we can have the mantle of praise and be light and airy. So again, not a spirit of heaviness. You know, don't go around discerning spirits. Oh, someone looks upset. Oh, they've got a spirit of heaviness. <laughs> if by what you mean, if, if you mean by that, oh, they obviously feel heavy and down, yeah, you're right. If that's what you mean by a spirit of heaviness. You know, but don't for heaven's sake, you know, there's a demon of heaviness, you know. Here, it's simply talking about the human condition. So humanness again. Uh, Hosea. Hosea, chapter 4. I can never find Hosea. I've got a feeling I'm not going to have much luck now. Hang on. Hosea, oh, I've got it after Daniel. Hosea, chapter 4, <coughs> and verse 12. My people inquire of a thing of wood, and their staff gives them oracles, i.e. God's people were doing all the occult thing. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the harlot. Well, again, it's not talking about a demon of harlotry. It's unfaithfulness. Our hearts are unfaithful. 
This is simply saying an attitude of unfaithfulness, of harlotry, had taken Israel away from faithfulness to their God. And chapter 5, verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is within them, and they know not the Lord. It's not about, you know, that they've got, they're demonised by this demon of harlotry inside. It's talking about that is their attitude. They have fallen into unfaithfulness, purely as a result of the sinful nature. Now, are you getting the idea in regards to this, that the word spirit in the Bible is not always talking about spirits as in God and angels or Satan and demons. It's very often talking simply about human outlook and attitude. It's talking about humanness. Let's move into the New Testament and see some. Matthew 12. <coughs> Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43. When Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man. Now there, clearly you've got a reference here, spirit is a demon. So there, the unclean spirit, that is talking about an evil spirit, a demon. Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 33. And in the synagogue there was the man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, one of the things that's coming out here, can you see that when you've got spirit of, when it's a demon, it's so obvious. You see that? But when there's the slightest bit of doubt, it's talking about humanness. I.e., when the word spirit is used either of angels or demons, it is obvious that it's talking about angels or demons. Can you see? And that when you get stuff like spirit of slavery, don't fall back into fear, and the spirit of harlotry and the spirit of heaviness, that all the time, that is simply talking about humanness. When it's a demon, it is absolutely obvious from the context. All right. Uh, go back to Romans 8.15 in that context. Well, no, no, I just said it, didn't I, about, you know, you've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of sonship. Can you see? That's what it's all about. Can you see? That's humanness there. That is the way we should be living now. Our spirit, our outlook, the spirit in which we live, we live is of the fact we're the sons of God. We should not be living in this servile fear all the time, slavery. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. Now then, the spirit of the world, is there a <coughs> demon of the world? You know, is... Is Paul saying here, look, now, when you got converted, I don't want you to think that a demon of the world slipped in. It was the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that at all. He's, the spirit of the world is the character and moral attitudes of the world. I mean, when we talk about the spirit of the age in which we live, we're not talking about as a specific demon. 
which is the, the demon of the age in which we live. We're talking about it's the, the, the ambience, it's the thinking, it's the manner of behaviour of the world without God. And Paul's saying, right, now that's not what you are anymore. Instead, you're of the kingdom. You've got the Holy Spirit inside you. So your character and moral qualities and outlook is going to be totally different from the world around you because we are not of the world. Uh, go to uh, just over into chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21. And he's, uh, again, we saw it earlier. What do you wish? Shall I come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Again, there's the attitude. There's no spirit or demon of gentleness as opposed to demon. You know, can you see Paul's just talking about it's his attitude. It's his attitude. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 13. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Um, again, we've had this before. Since we have the same spirit of faith as he who wrote. Not a spirit, you know, like an angel being of faith, but quite simply the attitude in which we live is of faith. Go over to the Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In an attitude of gentleness. You see, spirit there is simply human attitude. Um, 2 Timothy. I know this is a very comprehensive list, but we've got to sort this one out right from the start before we can build on what we've done tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Um... And uh, he says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And again, he's not talking there about the Holy Spirit. He's not saying, look, the Holy Spirit isn't a spirit of timidity. He's a spirit of power and love and self-control. Paul is saying, look, that is the quality of life that God has given us. That is the human being that we are meant to be now. Not timidity, because that's the attitude, that's the fear of slavery. But power, love, self-control, confidence before God, that is the quality of human life that we now have because we're born again and we're a new creature in Christ. That's character. Our character that we received at the new birth isn't scared, timid, won't say boo to a goose. It's power, love, self-control. That's the quality of the life of Jesus in us. And then lastly, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And verse 4, and this is talking about the ladies, saying about how, how the lady folk ought to be. He said, But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit. And again, talking about human attitude, behaviour and character. All right. So let's, let's just start to wind up and see what exactly we've done tonight. We've seen what demons are. They are fallen angels. Demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits, synonymous terms, they are evil spirits. Uh, sorry, they are fallen angels. And a third of the angelic host are now demons, all right? 
We had a look at the Greek and the Hebrew concerning them. We defined them. We know exactly what they are, all right? But perhaps most importantly, what we've seen tonight is that when the Bible uses the word spirit, it can be referring to any one of ten different things. I showed you the ten ways in which the Bible uses the word spirit. Now, when you've got those ten categories, they boil down to three distinct things. The word spirit in the Bible refers either to God and the angels, Satan and the demons, or humanness in general. Okay. So, therefore, we want to get away from any idea that just because the Bible talks about spirit of, that it's necessarily talking about the activity of evil spirits. When the Bible uses the word demon, it is always referring to an evil spirit. But when the Bible talks about spirit, it can be referring to the Holy Spirit, to an angel, uh, to a demon, <coughs> or simply to humanness. And it's vitally important that one looks at the context of each, <coughs> excuse me, and works out exactly what it's referring to in any one instance. But what we did see is when the word spirit is used in the Bible of a demon, it is always obvious beyond doubt that it's referring to a demon. Other instances where it is not stated blatantly that it's referring to a demon, you will then find that the word spirit if it's not blatantly the Lord, as in Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of the Lord, if it's not blatantly angels, as in are they not ministering spirits, if it's not blatantly demons, it is always a reference simply to humanity. The character and condition of humanness at any one time. Therefore, the spirit of heaviness is not the description of a demon. It's the description of a mental and emotional human state. A sorrowful spirit is not a description of a demon. It is a description of a human being feeling sorrowful. Now, can you see that? Because it is vitally important. Can you see that right at the start, we've already virtually, but not completely, it will take more studies to do this, but we've wiped out spirits of this, that and the other, haven't we? We really have. And we've seen that it's not a question of God and Satan. It's a question of God and things angelic, Satan and things demonic, and us and things human. And that most of the references in the Bible, when it talks about spirit, are in fact referring to humanness and not to demons or even God at all. Now then, having done that, next time we're going to move on to see what the demonology is that is being taught in the churches today. And what we're going to do is we're going to see, does it match up with what the Bible teaches or doesn't? If it does, we're going to say, then that's going to be our demonology. If it doesn't, we're going to sort of run it through with the sword of the Spirit and throw it away, all right? And next time, I think you'll be amazed, and I hope actually a little bit staggered at the rubbish, the dangerous, unbiblical dross that is being taught 
by well-known and world-respected Bible teachers about the subject of demons. And we will move on to that next time.